Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actor, writer, director, comedian, and producer, Seth Rogen. Believe it or not, the origin of Seth's incredible career traces all the way back to bar mitzvah class in Vancouver. That's where 12-year-old Seth met 12-year-old Evan Goldberg, a fellow movie enthusiast who loved writing just as much as Seth did. A creative partnership between the two began instantaneously, and they immediately started writing what would become Superbad, inspired by their own escapades. As Seth tells it, we always wondered if our very specific high school experience would be relatable to other people, because we were just writing what happened to us as Jewish Canadian boys in Vancouver. It seemed pretty niche. Of course, it became the most successful movie about high school of all time. As his writing career post-Superbad took off, so did his acting career. Within the span of a few years, he became the face of American comedy, working on hit films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, and Pineapple Express. In fact, he had so much success over that span of time, he just assumed that was how the business worked. As he tells it, I didn't appreciate how miraculous that streak was. At the time, I was like, oh great, you make a movie, it turns out great, everyone loves it, and you make tons of money. Perfect. Well, he learned eventually that wasn't always the case. And as the movie budgets got bigger, so did the stakes, with more creative pressure and input from studio executives. It took one bad experience on the film Green Hornet, which was the studio's most expensive movie at the time, for Seth to realize that it was more important for Evan and him to maintain their artistic freedom than to make the highest profile movie. To this day, he holds on to that philosophy, and it's why he still loves making movies, including his newest film, Longshot, a political romantic comedy starring Seth and Charlize Theron. Seth says, When Evan and I make a movie like Longshot, and we're able to sit in the theater and watch the audience not only laugh, but feel what we hope they would feel, it's really gratifying. It means they're invested in the same things we are. Seth joins off-camera to talk about why moving to Los Angeles for a role in Freaks and Geeks was his version of going off to college, how he and Evan turned an idea into a full-fledged movie, and why saying no to a sitcom early in his career wasn't a hard choice at all. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Seth. What up, dude? How you doing? <laughs> I'm fantastic. You know, I've wanted to have you on this program since we started. I appreciate that. Very flattering. And, and I, I have to say, I feel like I've been there at certain touchstones in your career because I've photographed you several times. Yeah. For sure. I, I met you on Knocked Up, mm -hmm. where I put you in a baby stroller. Mm -hmm. And then we put uh, ultrasound fluid on your stomach. I do remember that. Yeah, yeah actually. <laughs> that was an attractive look. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> that cost me several leading roles, probably. I, I am why you've become the, the <laughs> yeah. producing writing juggernaut. Exactly. I had to really focus on writing after <laughs> that one. No, but then I, I, I worked with you on, on Azerve and Report uh -huh. and on... I think I photographed you for Superbad and for 50-50, and it's been amazing to see your career and to not even realize when I first met you how young you were. But I wonder <laughs> if you still sort of have that mentality or, or surrealistic feeling that, like, of how I got here. Very much so. Like, I mean, imposter syndrome is like a real thing, I think, <laughs> and I do... You know, it's like, you know, I, we've been reading about, you know, it's like the more you n learn about something, like the less you think you know about it is also a very real thing, I think. And so those are two things that I 
that I very much deal with and think about in my day-to-day life. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, like, a lot of people I know who have, you know, achieved the things that they were hoping to achieve and seem like maybe they'll able they'll be able to be allowed to keep doing it like feel like like why you know like one day it'll all come crashing down and then they'll, then they'll take it all away and they'll realize right. that we shouldn't have had it in the first place and honestly as i've gotten older i have started to think that like okay, like, in some form or another, I'll probably be able to continue doing this, but the more I learn about filmmaking, again, at times the more confident I feel, but also at times the more I look at other people's stuff and I'm like, wow, I could never fucking do anything like that, so. You bring up an interesting point about the longer you do something, the less you feel you know about it. It's the antithesis of what you think it would be, which is, you think you do something long enough and then you just walk around going, I am the master at yeah. this. Yeah. Oh, I know I've lost the thing I used to have. <laughs> so I try to make new things. And yeah, it's like people ask me a lot, I think, like, oh, like as someone who makes movies, like, do you watch movies differently than right. other people? And, and I probably do in some ways, but, but when I'm watching a great movie, I watch it the exact same way as everyone else, and then I feel terrible afterwards. <laughs> That's the only difference. But I feel like I've got to put myself in my head in this in certain categories to kind of protect myself to, from feeling like I'm in competition with these people who are just better than I am. <laughs> and so yeah, I can justify it in my head being like, oh, we do different things. And so that is something that I tell myself a lot and it is something that I, is very helpful for my psyche is just like I shouldn't feel like this person is taking away from what I'm doing because we do different things. I remember like when we were making Green Hornet, like we there was parts where like we were trying to think of these big action scenes that were like just action scenes. Like they had no like comedy or subversion to them. And I remember me and Evan looking at each other afterwards being like, oh, like, like, like what, like Michael Bay will think when he watches this is what we think when Michael Bay tries to be funny. <laughs> like, and like, that's like, that's what's happening here is like, we're kind of just trying to do a thing that we don't really do instead of trying to make it into a thing that we, that we do well, you know? Right. And, and I think there was a time when, again, maybe we were less secure trying to prove that we could do different things where we were like, oh, we should try to do this and try to not include the things we normally have in our films, <laughs> you know, as maybe a way to kind of prove that we can, we don't have to rely on that maybe, I don't know. Um, but I remember we literally had that conversation like as we were doing it was like, oh, like there are guys who like this is their skill. Yeah. That doesn't mean we can't start to like include other things in that, but we shouldn't just try to do like, we shouldn't just cut out all the shit we're good at basically, you know? Um, yeah. Well, why yeah. As, a, as an artist, why is it that the things that come easy and natural to us that are our own original voice, they don't get the kind of respect that the things we see that, that aren't things we do. Yeah. I, I think, or we just take them for granted. I think that's also a thing where like it, it you know, the things that just seem inherent to us don't seem particularly special. challenging or special. Yeah. So I think there is also some sense of like, in order for art to be good, it has to be like labored <laughs> or like it has to be hard. Um, and it often is, so don't worry. But I think like when things come naturally, I think also like we tend, to, I know I tend to devalue a little bit or right. I used to tend to devalue the things that kind of came naturally to me. Um, and then I think, again, as I've gotten a little bit older, I look back and I'm like, oh no, those things 
actually like really connected with a lot of people and we're not things a lot of other people were saying or doing necessarily so like although some of that might have come very naturally and in my head I wasn't like oh I'm fucking rewriting the way movies are made um, in in some ways there were some things that really did like leave a lasting impact for sure on movies and left like a ripple on on how people thought about making comedies I think in small ways and so that you know that that is good, and uh, but it, yeah, I think at the time it just didn't feel like that. It didn't feel like it was special enough or something right. like that, you know. Um, well, I was thinking about your film Long Shot. You play a sort of a liberal journalist whose yeah. morals are and ethics are extremely rigid and and pure, and your ex babysitter friend is now Secretary of State running for president, played by Charlize Theron. You guys yeah. run into each other, and it made me think. There are certainly people that are going to be diametrically opposed to your political views, or what, or what the movie's trying to posit. You know, the, the <laughs> that a woman of, that a woman should maybe be president, <laughs> yes, or the, or the yeah. level of sexism, yeah. or the level, you yeah. know, the, the exposing sort of mm-hmm. that sort of thinking double that's standards. been okay, yeah, the double standards. That, yep. And you're going to have people that are loving this film that don't believe that way, and maybe, maybe in a way, it's subversive enough to get people thinking in other ways. And 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 I was curious if you think about that at all in terms of like on top of the comedy you're doing the subversive nature of the fact that comedy can, in a sense, reach across the aisle. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, um, you know, like, we we work on these movies for a long fucking time, <laughs> and in order to just keep ourselves interested, they have to have something that is, like, not just entertainment value. Like, there has to be something that's, like, really intellectually stimulating to us in that, like is really the things that we think about and care about. And I've seen, like, what's funny is, like, Sausage Party is, like, a pretty hard swing against organized religion. And I remember, like, on social media reading, like, there were tons of people who were like, I had never thought of it like this before. Like, I was raised religious. I never thought about why they maybe came up with religion and why, how that was maybe self-serving to certain groups of people and as a way of managing society. And Because in a way, it's what could have been like our silliest movie, but also had kind of like the deepest thought behind it in some ways, probably just because we worked on it for so long. And we were like, oh, you can actually really weirdly make people think about stuff that they never maybe would have thought of before, and they don't even realize they're thinking about it until like hours after they finish the movie sometimes. They just are laughing and enjoying it, and then they're left with a slightly different perspective on things, which is that we were like, oh, that is like something to really strive for, you know? And we also know, like, depending on how crazy the movie seems, it should be cheaper, basically. (laughs) And that's, like, a very simple formula we use where it's like, oh, this movie's fucking nuts. We shouldn't make it for $50 million. Or like, oh, this movie seems like it has a really big audience to it. We should make it for $40 million. You know, like, yeah, for sure. Like, to us, the budgeting of the movies is, like, as much a part of the creative conversation as anything, really. Like, we try to... It's why we keep being allowed to make crazy movies <laughs> because we don't make them too expensive right. when they are that. Like, I'd rather keep making cheap movies that at worst don't lose people a lot of money and at best make people a ton of money than 
making these big, huge movies where after maybe a couple of them don't do well, people are like, fuck this guy. And right. then I have to like reconceive of how my entire producing philosophy is, which I also don't want to do. You know what I mean? So uh, Did that come about on Green Hornet? Because I read around that time you said that you learned you'd rather be you'd rather be making the studio's least expensive movie. For sure. Like that was like a real shock as far as like the different level of scrutiny you get um, when you are their biggest focus versus how little scrutiny you get when some other assholes are their biggest focus and you're the guy that they can't be worrying about because you cost one-tenth as much as these guys. So just from a sheer manpower standpoint, it's a waste of resources to focus on our shit. And that was something that, like, Green Hornet really made us appreciate. We were like, oh, now we're the assholes that some <laughs> other motherfuckers are getting to make whatever they want because we're absorbing all the studio's attention um, and scrutiny, you know? What what did you discover when you had that scrutiny and all the studio's attention in terms of the way it killed the creative process? It was just so, like, it was one of those things where, like, it was like death by a thousand cuts, and you kind of don't even realize it's happening until it's happened, you know? Like, we just never experienced anything like it, and, and I think it is one of those things where in real time, also there's, like, a real certain level of delusion that is, like, required when making a movie. Like, you kind of have to trick yourself into thinking it's, it's not at least really bad <laughs> or else it's hard to just keep going, you know? So it, it felt like very early on we weren't really going to do what we had ho hoped to do, but we still hoped what we were then going to do would be, you know, something that we were proud of and super psyched about. Um, but yeah, I remember like we had never gotten like notes really. We had written Superbad and Pineapple Express for Sony. They both right. had done really, really, really well. We're both critically well-received, like, and then all of a sudden it was like, all right, like, time for our four-hour notes meeting, like, page one. Why does he say this? Page two, that seems like a big chunk of dialogue. Shouldn't it be this, more back and forth? And how like, does that feel in the room when you're having to sort of justify I remember just being like, what the fuck? Like, I feel like I was like, what is happening right now? And they were like, we're giving you notes. And I was like, like, this is crazy. Like, it was, I, we didn't just sit there and fucking, we, we were probably, it was, a uh, there was a lot of conflict. It was like a highly confrontational situation because we also aren't and weren't people that just like sit there and take that stuff. We were like, what the fuck is going on? We were like, you hired us, we thought, because we've written two good movies for you guys with none of your input. Right. Why do you think the third one, all of a sudden, with all this input is going to be better like it was it was so stupid <laughs> but then there was also some sense of like okay like we're trying to do something different like maybe i think like how much of what makes us special do we need to hold on to or will it be exciting to try to do something that right. feels totally unlike what we've done before so maybe these things that we're like holding on to maybe we shouldn't hold on to as hard and maybe that's what can make this great you know um that wasn't true. <laughs> but what's nice about making movies is sometimes when you're lucky, you can have, like, before Green Hornet came out, I had made 50-50. Right. So, like, there was also this sense of, like, yeah, like, maybe this is not going well, but... I'm re really proud of this other thing we made. <laughs> I think other people will like that. And so, like, and we've already made it, so it's not like 
there's this fear of that we'll never get to make another movie because we already made another movie. And as long as that movie isn't a disaster also, then maybe they'll keep letting us make movies, you know? Um, so that's been something that has been very comforting a lot of times throughout my career is like to just keep working. And like, I remember like when the stuff with the interview happened, like I was right. filming the Steve Jobs movie like a, like a week later. Like it was just, it, 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 it I was like, any fear I had that it would hurt my career, I couldn't have because I was just working, you know? And, like, yeah. there was fear of, like, well, you know, with Green Hornet also, I was, like, there is this thing when, like, everyone hates you for a moment. There is, and, like, critics just fucking hate you. And, like, there is a fear of just, like, will I, will I ever get them back? <laughs> like, will, really? will people ever think I'm talented again? Like, like... I, it's less of a fear of almost like, will audiences accept me again? It's more a fear of like, will the intellectual media accept me again, you know? Um, and that's been something, again, I've seen go like back and forth a fucking thousand times. So now at this point, I have less fear of that. And I'm like, yeah, you know, like they might hate you one year and then two years later they might decide they like you again like work as long as everything. you keep working and, yeah. and and it's and it's good work then then it's not it's not like this irreparable damage you know hey folks let's take a break from the conversation for a minute to talk about this week's sponsor helix sleep you know i think about helix sleep pretty much every night because i have a helix mattress at my house and i've been sleeping great ever since i got it this is not ad copy that they're telling me to read i am a fairly tall man i skateboard i ride motorcycles i have done my fair share of crazy things and i have a history of back problems and back issues and since i've been sleeping on this mattress i haven't had any back issues and it can't be a coincidence you have to try helix sleep so here's how it works. Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Whether you're a side sleeper, hot sleeper, whether you like a plush or firm bed, with Helix, there's no more confusion and no more compromising. Helix Sleep was even awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2019 by GQ and Wired Magazine, and CNN calls it the most comfortable mattress they've ever slept on. So if you're in the market for a mattress, or even if you're not, maybe you are and you don't know it. Just go to helixsleep.com slash off camera, take their two minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. And for couples, Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. They have a 10 year warranty and you get to try it out for a hundred nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Take it from me, I'm sleeping on this thing, and it's great. So if you're out there, you're listening to this, and you get a mattress, write me an email and tell me if you're having the same experience that I am. Now here's the greatest thing. Helix is offering up to $125 off all mattress orders for our listeners. So you can get up to $125 off at helixsleep.com slash off camera. That's helixsleep.com slash off camera for $125 off your mattress order. Once again, that's helixsleep.com slash off camera. Now back to the show. So when you sit down to write a movie, is it always a collaborative process for you? Is it always like either with Evan or whoever, or do you ever go into a room alone and write? I do write alone. I'll like brainstorm alone or I will just write alone. But I, um, I, 
in general with movies, like I do most of it with Evan and yeah. almost all of it together, like in a room together, basically. Yeah. How'd you meet Evan? In bar mitzvah class when I was twelve. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and was it an immediate like, oh, this is this is my like counterpart? Like, did you? We became friends pretty fast. Yeah, and like he, I was like interested in writing and comedy, and at twelve. Yeah, and so was he. Like, he wrote like short stories, and when you're twelve and you like writing, and you meet another kid who likes writing, it's like a very easy connection. And we both like comic books. Like, we had a lot. Uh, we just had a lot in common, and so we started hanging out, and we started trying to write super bad, like when we were like 13. Like very quickly, we decided to try to write a movie together. Um, so that was your first attempt at a film was super bad. Uh huh. And it's weird because the characters in super bad are to 12 years. Of yeah, <laughs> but, but the characters in super bad are 17. Yes. So when you were 13, were you writing about 17-year-olds? No. When we were 13, they were 13, and then they got older as we got older. I think when we were 13, we probably didn't even realize we should be paying much attention to how old they were. <laughs> it was like, they're like... I they're think, like us. Yeah, exactly. They're just like us. And then, and then as we got older, we were like, oh, as a movie, it should have context, and you should understand like, that they're maybe going to graduate soon, and all these... Like, at first, it was just almost like scenes of things that had happened to us slash just, it's almost like, was like high school sketches. Right, It was right. like zoning out in Spanish class, some of the, like, real, like, you know, sitting in the cafeteria making fun of the other kids, like, things that we did, like, and then we'd go to a party and something would happen and we would just, it, it was kind of like writing out shit that had happened to us in, like, scene form, basically, and making it funnier than it was in real life and adding jokes and punchlines and stuff like that. And then, and then slowly, over the next couple of years, it like got this structure of like, oh, it could be about these guys who were trying to lose their virginity, kind of, and then college is coming, and then, and then beyond that, we were like, oh, it would be great if it had like a deeper emotional story about separation and all these things that, as we went from being 13 to 22, we got much more a comfortable talking about <laughs> and just more context on as you know as it had kind of gone in the past a little bit right know? well I'm so curious about that because I had a I had a best friend that we were in a band together yeah. and, and it does it makes you more serious when you look across at your friend and they want it as bad as you and, yeah and, and I was curious if the way you guys wrote scenes originally for super bad if they're still um, if if your process and structure is still similar to the way it was yeah, when you started. Yeah, very similar. It's almost exactly the same, honestly. We would write in his sister's bedroom. There was a family computer, and we would go there after school. Um, eventually, maybe that's when we were like 12 or 13. Um, and eventually, yeah, at first it was just like sketch. Like, again, like we'd be like, oh, at that party this weekend, like fucking Dan and Matt got in a fight over him taking his beer. Like, let's write that, you know? Like, something that's in the movie that I, is also in an episode of a TV show I wrote is like once we stole a keg and so we had to like crack it open because we didn't have the pump and so we would pour the beer and we stored it in all these weird containers and we kept it in like detergent jugs and shit right, which like is why Superbad. Superbad, he yeah. does that and so we kind of would just write down these funny things that were happening and then as we got a little older 
I remember, like, when we were, like, six, like, I started smoking weed, so I would want to get out of the house, <laughs> right, somewhere else. We would literally sit in my grandparents. I would borrow their Volvo, and we would just park it on the street in Vancouver, and I eventually, that's when laptops around then, you could get one. And so we would literally sit in a parked car on the street and smoke weed and write on a laptop computer for so, no hours. difference to that. Sometimes we'd sit in an alley, literally, like, like we would just, like, find an alley and just sit there on, like, on the ground and write and smoke weed. And, um, yeah, and then, uh, yeah, it's, it's not that different, honestly. Like, now we understand so much more about, like, the structure of movies and how to... But even that, we're trying to challenge and, and come up with new ways of doing this shit and... And not just fall into, you know, the way that we've been doing it, but also try to do what we're good at at the same time. Right. Know? Well, when you were young, and, like, when you met Evan, you already wanted to write movies, you already wanted to be a comedian, correct? Yeah. But, like, when did you discover that, oh, I'm funny, or this is something I love, or, like, what, what made you so focused on that at a young age? I don't know. A luck is a lot of it, probably. Like, I think... My parents liked comedy and liked movies and were big fans of comedians and would watch stand-up comedy at home and would watch movies. And they were huge Bill Murray fans and Harold Ramis and SCTV. I think also being Canadian, comedy is kind of like a slightly... It's one of our biggest exports in Canada. So I think it's a little more uh, like respected as part of like our culture. Like theater sports are kind of from Vancouver. And like the organization of improv is originated in Vancouver. Yeah. Um, And so I did improv in high school. Like it was always just like... Again, it was it wasn't like this silly thing that it was like a it was something that people were proud of again because I think they had been originating it. Kids in the Hall was like oh, massively yeah. influential to us. It's funny me and Jay Baruchel talk about it. Like like the opening credits of Kids in the Hall was the first time that funny people looked cool. That was something when you're like a nerdy kid who wants to be funny was like so crazy and they're like in leather jackets and smoking cigarettes and like in bars and then on the show they're like dressed ridiculous and doing like the stupidest shit but like it showed like oh they're cool <laughs> like <laughs> like okay. they're at a party they someone invited them <laughs> and that was like aspirational in a way honestly so when you ask a canadian like what are some of the proudest accomplishments canadians have done lots of them involve comedy you know when you ask an american that none of them involve comedy (laughs) and so it's landing on the moon exactly (laughs) and so it's inventing jazz yeah it's it's things like that and so um that yeah i think that encourages people in I think that's why Canada, uh, comedy is like there's a lot of Canadian like com- it seems like there's a disproportionate amount of Canadian comedians in America um, because it is this like self-fulfilling prophecy a little bit and um, and at the same time I think Canadians have like a good perspective on America like because we are not American but we are right there like watching it so like we see everything that happens but it isn't us, you know, <laughs> and I think so that that puts Canadians in a very unique position to comment on American culture, you know. So, at what age were you actually doing gigs? 
like stand up or improv uh, or like 13 is when I started performing really yeah so what was your material like at 13 um I mean who was your person that you sort of like above all you wanted to be like like who was I, your I had like a hard time like I was a big fan of like Jerry Seinfeld and I was a big fan of um I was a fan of a lot of people. I liked Stephen Wright a lot. I, was, I like, love pretty, Stephen Wright. I liked that like surreal kind of abstract stuff. For a while, I kind of was just mimicking other people, I think. I'd be like, oh, these were like Jerry Seinfeld style jokes, and these are like Stephen Wright style jokes. And then when I was like 15 or 16, another comic was like, yo, like, why don't you talk about like high school shit, man? Like, don't fucking talk about like I had a joke about like crazy glue. Like, what's so crazy about it? Like, I had like those. <laughs> I had those kind of jokes, and he was like, "Don't talk about fucking crazy glue. Like, talk about trying to get a hand job for the first time. Like, talk about like going to parties and stealing beer. Talk about like trying to sneak into strip clubs. Like, talk about the shit that everyone did and you are doing now." Um, and I was like, you're right, I will. <laughs> and then Was that I a did. real epiphany? Yeah. It was this like convergence of things telling me like, oh, like the more personal you make this stuff, the better it will probably be basically. Yeah. And do you remember your first attempts at that stand-up-wise, how that went over or? It was great. I had a joke about like trying to convince my mom to like go into strip clubs for me and like report back to me what happened. Like <laughs> I had, yeah, like I all of a sudden started talking about like, yeah, like trying to hook up with girls and the things that would happen at parties. And a lot of the stuff that kind of made it into super bad were kind of like stand-up jokes I would try at times as well. Like just stories from high school kind of. Um, so were your parents pretty open to, I mean, it's funny, I've read a little bit about your family, but what I, what I haven't read about is like, were they pretty liberal and open to things, or did you get caught smoking pot, and yeah. was there a strictness to the whole situation? They weren't, like, thrilled about that. I would say, like, they, they weren't, like, crazy parents who were like, do whatever the fuck you want, go, like, they were not psyched when they caught me smoking, and I did hide it, you know, but, um, but at the same time, like, Vancouver itself is, like, a super drug-friendly city, um, and things like shrooms and weed were, like, pretty culturally acceptable and in the open and they had friends that smoked weed and stuff like that so um although they didn't my parents like it wasn't this like mystified demonic force right as it is in many places you know it was much more like they didn't love it but it wasn't like a huge thing you know so when you were 16 i read that you uh, that was right around the time you went and auditioned for Freaks and Geeks. Yeah. And I read something about your parents, like, losing or quitting a job. Like, it seemed like right at that time, a bunch of stuff changed. And it seemed like you were sort of all in on your career at a pretty young age. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I was nearing the age where I was going to graduate high school or, or, or finish high school. <laughs> I didn't graduate. But I was nearing the age where high school was ending. And... And they, we had a house that now they were going to be the only people in, and we, we didn't have a lot of money, so it, they were not the type of people who were like, oh, we should have a house that is made for four people to live in, and now there's two of us. Like, so, and my dad, my dad had never had, like, what I would call, like, a stable career. Like, he worked at one place for a few years, he worked at another place for a few years, worked at another place for a few years. So, yeah, like, there was this kind of coincidental moment where our house was up for sale because my sister was moving out and I was going to be finishing high school, so my parents were going to be moving into a smaller place. And 
my parents were, I think, both maybe between jobs, and that's around when I got cast on Freaks and Geeks, so it was like everyone just, and I was 17, so everyone just moved to LA for like a year. Did you have sort of this intention in mind that I'm gonna go do this and, and I'm not worried about the consequences, I can't go to college, or? Yeah, I, I already was not gonna be able to go to college, because I like <laughs> had not was not approaching high school in a way that was conducive to post-secondary education. <laughs> like, I, I barely went, and like, I remember sometimes I go to class and be like, well, I haven't seen this fucking teacher in like weeks, it feels like. Like, I just was not that engaged in high school, you know? Um, so I would walk in and just be like, what is happening? Like, I haven't, I don't even know what, I don't know what book we're reading, I don't know what any of this shit is. And so... And your folks like, were kind of fine with that. It, I mean, there was less technology at the time, so like, it was harder for your parents to know if you were going to class that often, honestly. Like, they, school was not as interactive as, as it is now, so like, you could hypothetically cut a lot of class before your parents had any idea what was happening. Vancouver um, sounds like a great place to grow up. Yeah, it was lovely. Um, and uh, would it have been a lot of fun to go to college? Yes. Uh, instead, I was making a TV show about college, college. at yeah. the time when I was supposed to be in college, which was also a lot of fun. No, and I, I, I mean, obviously it worked yeah, yeah. out great, and there, there would be no reason for regret. But yeah. I just wonder if thinking back at the time, well, although, it, was, it was scary at the time. It I was. remember, yeah. But everyone was doing scary shit at the time. Like I think at that age, where you're leaving high school and moving out for the first time, and like it wasn't. I think the nice thing was the timing. Even though I was doing something very different, it was the time when I would have been doing something kind of like that anyway. So like. I, it was maybe a year early, but I think everyone, I think everyone when they're a senior in high school feels like they're ready to get the fuck out of there anyway. I was just able to. Right. And I think like that last year is like a real trick for a lot of people because you, you're done. Like, you know you don't want to be doing this shit anymore and a lot of people also know what, what they would rather be doing. So I wasn't like some six-year-old who was moving to LA or something. Like I was 17, I'd been doing stand-up a long time. I had like a pretty good sense of like what I been wanting to do. I had a finished screenplay essentially. So like it wasn't this, it, it was scary, but again, it was, it was my version of going to college kind of. Well, and we all know the story of Freaks and Geeks at this point, which is that it was this seminal TV show that Judd Apatow and Paul Feig made and launched the careers of so many people, yourself and James Franco and Linda Cardellini and Busy Phillips and Jason Siegel. But it was only on the air one year. So you came down, you're, you land on like the best show on television if you don't look at the ratings. And, yeah. and you're in sort of this cocoon of creativity and to have it end so quickly, you know, I, I've spoken to Judd about this a lot and he talks about feeling extremely responsible for bringing these kids all in, into this and then... Yeah, he should have. And, and he mentions you specifically. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was like, oh, this kid might die. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it's interesting. Like, I think I, uh, I look back and I think about how little perspective I had in a lot of ways, you know? Like, I made more money that year than my whole, my, my family had throughout their entire lives. So the fact that it was canceled after a year wasn't that like 
it was a bummer, but it wasn't like, oh no, I'm fucked. It was like, and I won the lottery, basically. Like, I, you know. I had um, no expectations. It, yeah, I had very low expectations. And if anything, what was nice is like, oh, now I live in LA. I know a bunch of people. I'm 18. I have enough money to last for a couple years if I don't spend very much of it at all on anything. And, um, and so it was it was a bummer, but at the same time, it wasn't this like catastrophic, like my life is over. It's like there was some sense of like, oh, like maybe we'll well maybe we'll all be able to keep going, you know? But we saw it coming a fucking mile and a half away. Like it wasn't a shock by any means. Like right, you would get the anything, ratings. It was this and... slow death where people are just like hacking away at you. And so um, yeah, it wasn't like when we got the call, it wasn't like we would joke with each other. We'd always call each other pretending to be the heads of NBC canceling the show. Yeah, it was just like, you know, the show's canceled. That's going like, um, and so uh, it wasn't, yeah, like it wasn't big news. Did it sort of change your focus on, well, maybe I don't want to be an actor just for hire and so subject to like whether or not ratings are good? You know, I guess I'm asking if if you if it made you sort of think about a career plan, having that. Uh, no, didn't. <laughs> I've never thought about a career plan. <laughs> really? Uh, no, I mean, I would audition for things. I was in this movie Donnie Darko, like around that right. time. Like, I was more than happy to be like an actor for hire. Honestly, like, I just didn't get cast in anything. <laughs> um, I I got cast actually on like a network sitcom that I like declined the role after they cast me because I was like, I it, it was like a CW sitcom and I was like, I don't want to fucking do this basically. So um, I, that was my only career trajectory plan was like, I just don't want to do something that sucks, you know? Um, and that resulted in me just doing nothing for a long time. Really? Uh, and again, as long as I had money to live, then I was fine with that really. Well, it seems like you have this approach to life, which is why not take a big swing. Whereas I think a lot of people would get a role on a sitcom and be like, I have to take this. Yeah. Is that just in your nature to sort of not worry so much about how it's all going to turn out? And does that, does that give you the ability to take a bigger swing at something that seems like out of your league? I worry how it's all going to turn out, but I don't... Uh... It's funny, I look at those decisions and they are not hard decisions for me. Like, it, it, I see how something like that could have been a hard decision, but a much, a much harder decision. <laughs> like, a much, like, not doing a shitty sitcom was a, such an easier choice to make than potentially being trapped on a shitty sitcom. And so, like, it, I, in my head, it wasn't like, man, I'm really going to bet on me. It was just like, ugh, like, I, my life might be terrible for years because of this. It isn't this, like, big, like, bold moment. It was like, I remember they were just like, they want you to be on the show. And I was like, ah, I can't fucking do it. Like, tell them no. And they were like, what? Like, you, you auditioned already. I'm like, ah, I just, I, I don't want to do it. Like, uh, like it, it was... <laughs> Yeah, like, it's not this, like... Because that was guaranteed money versus probably... It was, and I remember people tried to convince me to do it, and it wasn't. Even that, I was like, no. <laughs> I was like, don't even bother fucking trying to convince me to do this. I, I wonder if seeing your father have a series of jobs and not really having that example of a really stable, secure thing made it in some way more okay for you to be... For sure. And because my family did not grow up with a lot of money. So the fact that I'd been on a network sitcom for 18 episodes, you know, I had like, 
like $100,000 or something like that. And at the time, like, that was enough for me to live for, like, years, you know? (laughs) And so it was fine. Like, it wasn't this, again, like, I, I only... When I started running out of money, which I did in maybe like 2003, <laughs> was when it started to get a little scary. But even part of me then was like, I guess maybe I'll move back to Vancouver. I don't fucking know. Like, I think also because, like, I did stand up comedy from when I was 13 to 18, and then I stopped. And like, I also had this, I think, thing from a pretty young age where I was like, you don't have to keep doing all this stuff. There was a sense where I remember I was just like, maybe I just won't be an actor. Like, maybe I'll just, like, my writing. People seem to be liking my writing and responding to that. Maybe I'll maybe I'll write, you know? Um, right. And it wasn't this catastrophic thing. It was more like, oh, maybe that's just where life will take me, you know? Hey, folks. Let's take a little break from the conversation to hear about one of this week's sponsors, HoneyBook. Now, as many of you know, besides doing this show, I'm a director and I'm a photographer. And since I was in my early 20s, I've had my own business. And I've had all the growing pains, trials, and tribulations of a small business owner who didn't go to business school, by the way. And I've kind of figured it out in the dark. And if HoneyBook was around when I was starting my business, I think I could have saved myself years of headaches and frustration. If you run a creative business, you know how to make your clients look good. But if you're struggling with the tedious administrative tasks like billing and invoicing and scheduling, then you're not putting your focus in the right place. HoneyBook can do the work for you and make you look good. So if you have a great idea for a business, what's usually holding you back? If the thought of all that administration work is overwhelming, HoneyBook is here to help you get your plan off the ground. HoneyBook is an online business management tool that lets you control your client communication, bookings, contracts, and invoices all in one place. If you're a creative freelancer or a small business owner, HoneyBook helps you stay organized with custom templates and automation tools. You can even use HoneyBook to consolidate services you already use, like QuickBooks, Google Suite, and MailChimp. Over 75,000 photographers, designers, event professionals, and other entrepreneurs have saved hundreds to thousands of hours a year with HoneyBook. It's your business just better with HoneyBook. So right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off your first year with the promo code OFFCAMERA. Payment is flexible, and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. So you have to check them out because I know a lot of you that listen have your own businesses, and if you're organized and all the administrative tasks are done, then you can focus on the important stuff, like the creative side of your business. So go to HoneyBook.com and use the promo code OFFCAMERA for 50% off your first year. Get paid faster and work smarter with HoneyBook.com. Promo code off camera. Now, back to the show. Tell me about like having Judd as a mentor in terms of like those challenges he would do. Like I read he said something like, write 100 one-page ideas. I mean, I think that's something that's valuable for writers to do at some point in their careers is just like, to not have to put a lot of value on everything you write and to also understand that like sometimes you are writing for other people that was another thing that like I would do for Judd like I'd been writing super bad and he had been helping me with it but he would give me notes and I didn't have to listen to them because it was my screenplay you know what I mean and mine and Evan's movie so like if he was like this scene like you're doing too much of this we could be like no fuck you it's our movie you know but then I remember I started writing out Undeclared and he gave me a bunch of notes on a script that I had written, and I was like, 
do I have to do all these? And he was like, yes, because now you're writing on my TV show. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like, that, that changes this whole dynamic. Um, and so I, but that was very valuable. Like, it, it actually, I think, is good to just be, to kind of bring, try to bring as much as yourself into something, but know that you are not who who's con you are not the ultimate conduit you know like it's judd's vision on that and then with these assignments again it it was just something that would kind of like get you out of this like preciousness i think i think a lot of writers are very like precious with their work and don't want to actually write things like they'd rather talk like that's something like just as a producer i noticed with a lot of writers is like they'd rather talk about something for way more time than it would take them to just write it and and they put so much on the actual writing of the thing that it's it's like it's too elevated. It's like too revered, you know. And what's good about having to come up with a hundred ideas is like it takes a lot of the reverence out of actually putting words on a page, which is helpful, I think, because you shouldn't be afraid to write, you know. And and it takes away that fear. And a lot of people do have that fear of like committing. They want to talk for five hours so they can write for ten minutes. So that was probably hope what he was trying to impart on us. <laughs> no, I think that's fascinating. I mean, I, Or he just wanted 100 movie ideas. <laughs> right. I wonder if that exercise helped you to be able to recognize what a good idea is. No, 100% not. No. <laughs> I think what, what to, I think with me and Evan especially, like the only thing that lets us know if an idea is good is if we keep thinking about it for a long time. Like, we come up with, you know, five times a week, one of us will turn to the other and be like, you want to make a funny movie? This. Like, oh, this would make a funny movie idea. Oh, maybe we should make a movie about this. The ones that become movies are the ones where three years later, we're still being like, oh, and then you know what else could happen in that movie? Like, we combine a lot of things, too. Sometimes we're just like, we'll like strip it for parts. Be like, this idea's not good, but this like theme that we liked or this like tone that we liked or this like we talk a lot about like the audience experience also and that's that like sometimes there are like things where like okay like this experiential element that we had in this idea like this idea is not good but we could take that and put it into this how do you divide the labor we don't we literally do it all together so it's like difficult so so it's oral it's a lot of your things are start out as like they start out as lists of just ideas like with something like this at the end like it was just first it was like we like this idea of like people playing themselves in a I, in a world that was supernatural, that was funny to us. That so was that like, was that was the initial. That was probably impulse. one of the initial ideas. Okay. Was like, what if we would always joke about like Seth and Buster Rhymes versus the Ant Men? That was like the joking. That was like the first incarnation of the idea of like it was like probably around when we started working on the Sony lot. So like, you'd see all these random famous people around, and like we would be like, oh, like, it'd be funny if, like, we were stuck in one of these old situations with these people, you know? You know, then we just make lists of, like, ideas. Like, okay, like, what kind of apocalypse? Zombies, this, this, Christian apocalypse. Then then that, we start to like that. And then it's like, okay, Christian apocalypse. And then horror movies in general. Monsters, you're trapped somewhere. You're barricading yourself. You don't have, you have limited resources. You start arguing with each other. And then just things, set pieces, fire, X 
exorcism. And we do that for years. And then Darwinistically, your brain of the 200 ideas, your brain starts to gravitate towards like 60 of them. And those are the ones that you kind of start to organize a little bit in an order. And at the same time, you're trying to think of like an emotional story. So that was a thing that was happening to us at the time is like, we had had this kind of old group of friends and, and our new famous friends, and there was some right. at times conflict between those groups of friends. And that was something that, you know, we would found itself on a list one day as we were writing emotional stories. You're we just like, oh, there's conflict between like your friends from home and your new friends in your new life. And who's the better influence? And who are you? Are you the new friends or the old friends? You know? And then again, so, uh, slowly after years and years and years, it, that creates like an outline, basically. And then it's just adding what other external things can make it worse and bring more of that emotional stuff to the surface. Right. Um, all these things just turn themselves into a movie, basically, yeah. I'm curious what you think your unfair advantage or your secret, like, what do you think it is about you that makes you able to do that or, or, or is your advantage when you write? At this point, I think experience is helpful. Like, we've just made a lot of movies and I've just seen firsthand what works and what doesn't a lot. And I have gotten much better at recognizing what a movie needs and how to give it that thing. Right. And I think it's being able to access, uh, to understand what people connect to and, and what, and trusting that the things that you connect to, other people will also connect to. Because that's like a lesson we also learned very early on. We're like, super bad. Like, there was always this sense of like, is our high school experience very specific and unrelatable? We're just writing what's happening to us. We are Jewish Canadian boys in Vancouver. <laughs> like, it's pretty niche, you know? Yeah. And then it became the most successful high school movie of all time. So there was this lesson where it was like, oh, no, like, the more almost specific you make it to you, the more it weirdly has this inverse equation where it opens it up to other people. And strangely, the more specific you make it to the things you care about and the things you find interesting, the more people like it, not the less. And, and although logic dictates it should almost be the opposite, it's not. And that is something that we just have also like grown to trust is like, okay, if we think this is... If we relate to this, if this is something like with Longshot, there was a lot of talk about like, why did you, why did you choose the career you chose? Who was that person versus who you are now? Which is something I like very much relate to. It's like, yeah. why did we get into this shit? And, and if the person who hoped to get into this shit looked at where you were, would they be happy? Would they be like, motherfucker, you, you, this was not why we wanted any of this stuff, you know? And I think that's something that... That movie, it took us a long time to think of that. And it is like a really, you would watch all the trailers for the movie and never know that's a part of it. And that's by design because it's those, I remember Amy Pascal years ago told me a quote from Robert Town that was like a good movie at the start. The thing that seems most important is actually the least important. And the thing that seems the least, the thing that seems the least important is actually the most important. So like with Superbad is like a very, it, we had done that without realizing it kind of, where it's like you think it's all about like losing getting your virginity, laid. Yeah. getting laid, and there's this little seed of like, uh oh, we're not going to college together. And then like, the, it, it totally shifts throughout the course of the movie, right. you know? And I think with Longshot, it's done well in a similar way, where it's like, 
it's all about becoming president and these aspirations and these career goals. And then there's this little thing about like, yeah, morally, maybe I'm not doing these things for the right reasons. And maybe I'm not quite who I wanted to be when I was a child. And then one just completely swallows up the other, you know? And I yeah. think like that's something that... It's I mean, subversive. Experience, it has, uh, yeah, it, subversive it, it, empathy. Yeah, exactly. It's it's tricking the audience into it's like it's luring them in with plot and 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 giving them story instead, you know, which is also something we talk a lot about is like plot versus story. Like plot is like the things that are happening, and the story is like what it's actually about. And like the plot should be the thing that seems the most important at first, and the story should be like in there, but almost recognizable and then as the movie goes on like that ratio should completely reverse itself you know i remember with four-year-old virgin that's what judd was saying like that was the first real like movie experience i had and because i was like this movie's really like good and smart and emotional like why are we calling it fucking four-year-old virgin and like and the trailers just seem so like reductive and he was like no the whole thing is like we're going to trick people into seeing a movie that is smarter than one they would want to see and I was like, oh, I get that. It's actually smart. <laughs> you know, it's funny, the, the things that you've picked up along the way that have become sort of, um, they're the pillars of, of your success, that very thing. Yeah, I think, like, it, it's nice for people. I think, like, emotion is the thing that makes our movies work. Like, it, and, and we, I think we saw that with this evolution of the script of Superbad, where, like, there was a point where it was just like a funny high school movie, and then there was a point where we were like, oh, we actually maybe made this like a very good movie that people will maybe watch for decades to come, you know? And and the emotional resonance was the defining factor. It, it made all the jokes funnier, it made the sad parts sadder, and therefore the happy parts happier. And like, and it gave it all something that like people related to and saw themselves in, and, and it gave it stakes beyond plot. It gave it a story. Right. The plot should only support the story, and it should do it in a way where you, it never can tell that that's happening, you know? Well, it's impressive that that was the first thing you two tried to write, and you didn't abandon it, because it almost is that you didn't abandon the thing you loved as kids when you got to Hollywood, or when you, yeah. you know what I mean? And you stuck with it. And I was curious if there was a moment where you actually uh, communicated with or looked at Evan and, and realized what a big deal it was that that you were getting to make this? Yeah, we, all the time. We were like, I can't fucking believe this is happening. We were thrilled. I got shingles the first week of shooting, so I couldn't go for the first few days of filming, and I was so fucking pissed. And the whole time, he was calling me, being like, dude, oh man, like, like you're never gonna, like, they're making it. It's happening. And also, like, I remember we rehearsed Right when we finally cast Jonah and Michael, we rehearsed in my apartment, and it was like me, Evan, Jonah, and Michael, and Greg, the director. And Michael, Sarah, and Jonah Hill are just like two of the funniest human beings ever born. And like, I remember me and Evan watching them together in my fucking living room, just being like, this is great. Like, it's so much funnier than me. I, I also remember, because like, the Evan role was not funny. Like, he was really the straight man, and Jonah was the, and Seth, the Seth character was like the funny one. And Michael was so funny. And that was the thing we really didn't predict. And I remember reading it the first time, we're like, holy shit, like, it's debatable which one is funnier, right. which is something we like never predicted. We like didn't think we'd find like a straight man with as much comedic power as Michael Sarah, because there is very few of those on the planet. 
it's like a marvel. It's like, it's not something I can do. Like, it's fucking hard to do that. Well, it must have been so validating to your, to your aspirations as a kid. Yeah. We were also very, like, they should have made this fucking movie years ago. Like, we, like, there was something very, like, because we were young and cocky and kind of, like, had a chip on our shoulder, there was some sense of, like, fucking finally. We've been trying to sell this shit for fucking years and years and years, and no one's fucking bought it. And now, finally, they're making it. And yeah, look, it's exactly as funny, if not even funnier, than we've been fucking screaming at you it was going to be this whole time. And so there was a little bit of that, which I'm not incredibly proud of, but we'll admit that that was something we would talk a lot about. <laughs> and, and did a lot of people pass on it along the way? And Everyone. Like, we tried to sell it for years from... You know, from, yeah, like 19, from like 99 to then, we were consistently trying to sell it, and everyone passed on it. What do you take away from that lesson? Because I'm, I'm sure most people, a few years go by, and the message is, this script isn't wanted by this business. Yeah, we just thought they were wrong. We were like... Where does that come from? The lovely thing is it's not hard to tell yourself that the people at Hollywood are not the fucking brightest bulbs in the bunch. It's, it's, it, you don't walk out of a lot of those meetings being like, well, the most fucking genius people on earth told us their idea was stupid. We're like, these motherfuckers will be gone in a week. And some other dumb motherfuckers will be sitting in there. Maybe they'll make it. So it was pretty easy to write off their opinions, honestly. And, like, we would. We, like never were we like this isn't good enough we were just like these people are stupid hopefully they'll be fired soon and replaced by slightly less stupid people <laughs> and we also were writing the whole time like we we wrote Pineapple Express in that time too and, and also no one would make that so we had two movies that no one would make um, God, it's, yeah. it's incredible <laughs> the confidence you had to keep pushing that rock up the hill you know what I mean when yeah and like I, I, I think like we we were super charmed with our first like run of movies we made also. And it's something yeah. I look back on and like I didn't quite appreciate it as much as probably I didn't appreciate how miraculous just the fact that we made Four Year Virgin, Knocked Up, Super Bad, Pineapple Express, like in a row basically. And yeah. they like all did well and were critically pretty well received, like it's just like was a crazy run, you know? Yeah. And I think at the time I was just like, oh, great. You make a movie, turns out great. Everyone loves it and you make tons of money. Perfect. And then like I would, for years I was like, oh, no, that doesn't happen at all, all the time. And, and then I look back, I was like, oh, and those movies were like very much the result of like years and years and years and years of backlogged work and then were just made in a really quick amount of time. Yeah. But, like we're very much like in a good way, like labored over. Hey folks, let's take another little break from the show and hear from one of this week's sponsors, Snow. You know, everyone wants their home to look and feel great. I just redid my home and my aesthetic is pretty clean and modern and comfortable. And when it's time to redo your home or just freshen up a room, it can be overwhelming with all the choices out there. Luckily, Snow makes it incredibly simple. They create trend-proof, beautiful, functional pieces made for how you live. Whether you just got the keys to your first place or you're looking to upgrade the pieces you've had forever, Snow has home goods that are practical and striking to look at. Snow makes luxury essentials for every room in your home, minus the markup. They partner directly with master craftsmen to create beautiful, simple products that are made to last. 
like their incredibly soft, award-winning sheets and fluffy duvets, or luxurious air-spun cotton towels and robes. And I will say I have all these in my house, and the sheets are crisp and clean and comfortable, and they don't get that clingy feeling or that rough feeling that some sheets get after you wash them. They're just really well-made, comfortable sheets. They also have super durable, dishwasher-safe porcelain dinnerware and wine glasses with titanium-enforced stems for all you clumsy drinkers out there. Snow has received rave reviews from Vogue, Fast Company, Apartment Therapy, and more. It's the home collection of your dreams, priced for your reality. So right now, Snow is offering our listeners $30 off your first purchase of $150 or more when you go to snowhome.com slash camera. That's S-N-O-W-E home dot com slash camera to get $30 off your first order. Again, visit snowhome.com slash camera for your special offer. Now back to the show. You know, I went back and I watched 40-year-old version again, and I watched Superbad, and the thing that strikes me is I know the process, especially on 40-year-old version, involves some improv. Yeah. And also on Knocked Up. And I guess I'm curious how you were able to get on those big sets with so many actors and improv, because I feel like to do improv, you have to be totally in the present, not a, not self-critical of what's coming out of your mouth, not worried about whether it's funny or not. I think, as I've made more movies, I've grown to appreciate how great a lot of the improvisers that I started out working with are and how it is not a skill that is held by <laughs> everyone. And that a lot of those people did not improvise like funny uh, actors, they improvised like writers. They weren't just saying- What's the difference? The difference is jokes versus story. Like, okay. And knowing that jokes are only really funny if they are directly supported by the story. Um, and and character, you know? Um, and, and there are people who can just come up with funny jokes, but they don't, they're not funny jokes because they aren't born of story and character. And that's what, when I look back at what, you know, Paul Rudd and Carell and Franco, when we were doing Pineapple Express, we improvised a lot. Like, they were all thinking of it like writers. They weren't thinking of it just through the lens of like, what would a person say in this situation? They're thinking of it of like, how do I move the story forward? How do I create more conflict? And that's the difference, like, like, People who are great at improvising are able to do that. And I think the reason I was good at improvising is that I was a writer and I didn't approach it like an actor. I wasn't thinking like, what would my character say in this moment? I was thinking like, what would I hope a character would say in this moment to make this whole scene better and move this story forward and and make it all seem more natural and um, round out the edges that dialogue has sometimes, you know? Um, and And that is really the difference is I think like, great improvisers are writers, not just actors who are like, what would my character say right now? Because often what your character would say right now like derails the whole fucking scene. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. right. When you're doing it, are you still hard on yourself when it's happening? Like, ah, uh, I couldn't think of anything better or... Yeah, I, I, what I see more is I get annoyed with other people. <laughs> what do you mean? I like see it in the dailies. Like, if... When I was young, that, like... If I'm in a scene with someone who is improvising a bunch of shit I know is useless, I, like, can't pretend that I don't. Like, I I see myself, like, get a look on my face just like, like, well, we're just fucking wasting time right now. Like, I used to, I think maybe because I wasn't as good at recognizing what would be useful and what wouldn't be, I would maybe, like, go along for the flight of fancy. But now I'm like, 
uh, where like none of this will be in the movie. Like, sure, right, it seems right. funny now when like, the like, camera you're... guys are laughing, but like, what I know is just because everyone on set is laughing doesn't mean it's funny, and just because no one on set thinks it's funny doesn't mean it's not funny. Because I've had enough of those, both of those happen. There are scenes that I've shot where I'm like, this shit fucking sucks. Like, this is pointless garbage. And it turns out to be really, really, really funny. And there are other scenes where I've been like, we're fucking the funniest people on earth. And then you like test it once and you're like, oh no, we were very wrong. What is the I barrier think, standing between being able to see it in the present? What versus- I think there's no accounting for taste <laughs> is one thing. You just never, it's hard. It, We've gotten better at it, and what we've gotten much better at is creating an infrastructure to support the fact that it is some that it is hard to, with a hundred percent certainty, predict one movie theater full of people is going to laugh at. That is just something we've seen enough times that we've learned to protect ourselves, and we've learned to get options on things where it's like, okay, if this is bad. What could we do instead? And if the structure of the movie is good and each scene really leads to the next and has a good conflict and characters that have good dynamics that you understand and it's all working towards something good, then that help that does like 90% of the work, honestly. It makes me wonder what, after, after so many films, after producing, writing, directing, acting, and having such a long career in a relatively short time, what do you, like, what do you still absolutely love about it? Um, like seeing our movies in theaters full of people and them doing what we hoped they would do. And time, like it's those two things. Like making movies I also just love. Like I very much enjoy the process. Like I'm, I am happy on set. I like being on set. I like collaborating. But yeah, like when our movies work the way we hoped, it's like really gratifying. And then what's nice also is like time is also like a great equalizer and it is very gratifying. Like, I was in this movie, Observe and Report, that came out 10 years ago. Yes. And it just came on Netflix, so people have been, a lot of people are watching it for the first time. And it's a movie that, when it came out, was, like, a failure and got pretty bad reviews. And I was, like, super proud of it. And, like, to this day, it's one of my favorite things I've ever done. And, like, now the fact that it was a bomb that half of critics called socially regressive, like, is kind of irrelevant. And it's just a movie that, like, millions of people are watching on Netflix and enjoying. Right. Which means it held up and it did its thing and it's not one of those millions of movies that just vanishes into obscurity and no one ever thinks about again, you know? And so that's nice and... Also, when we make a movie like Longshot and you're able to sit in a theater and watch it and it just does exactly what you hoped it would do, that's like a really gratifying thing where you're like, oh, they're laughing where they hoped, we hope they would laugh. They're feeling what it seems we hope they would feel. They're invested in the things we want and it's very gratifying, you know? Well, I'm so impressed with you, and you're such a talented guy, and, and I think that, you know... This is great for me. <laughs> Keep going. I think that watching your career and seeing where you started and, and what you've been able to do in, in different genres, in different ways, it's impressive and fascinating to talk to you and to, and to get inside your mind a little bit about how you do this stuff, and I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, at any time. I appreciate it.
Hey folks, that's our show. Boy, it was fun to sit down with Seth. I haven't seen him in a little while, but there was a time there when I worked with him every year or so as he made these incredible films. And it's amazing to see where his career has gone and how smart he is about the way to make movies. I always love when a guest comes in and really breaks down their process. And I think if you're a writer and especially a screenwriter, that was a really fun conversation. And if you're like me, after you hear a conversation like that, you want to go back and watch all of the films that that person wrote or acted in to see what they're talking about. Definitely start with Longshot because it's his most recent and it's a great film. But if you've missed things like Sausage Party or Observe and Report or Pineapple Express, there's some great work in there that kind of illustrates what Seth was talking about in our conversation. And to experience all of the conversations I've had on Off Camera, you should really visit offcamera.com, the hub of this show. As you know, we are a podcast, a television show, and a magazine. So if you haven't visited offcamera.com yet, you might be missing the full spectrum of what we do. First off, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, take a minute, go to Apple, subscribe, and while you're there, leave us a rating and review. When you do those things, you'll never miss an episode getting dropped automatically into your feed each week. And you'll help more people find us by leaving us a review and a rating. So do that. And you can also see our television show on DirecTV's audience network, channel 239. And if you don't have DirecTV, you can also experience the television show through our monthly television subscription. For just $4.99 a month, you can have access to all 189 of the episodes we've done so far, plus new episodes going forward. It's a great deal and a great way to dive deep into the show. You can see what you've been hearing, and it's filmed in glorious 4K black and white, and you can watch it on any device at any time, as many times as you want. So check out our monthly subscription and dive deep into off-camera. Also, you can find us on social media. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. And if you love off-camera, take a minute, go on social media, tell your friends. By simply taking a few minutes and talking about why you love the show, you can turn more people onto it. Every time a new listener finds the show, it helps us keep doing this, and that's what we want to do. So shout about us on social media. Don't be shy. Once again, we are Off Camera Show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I'm Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. I want to thank everybody that helps us each week on the show. Couldn't do the show without these fine folks. Crawford Shippey, Michaela Galvin, Nathan Shields, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson. When you see these people, give them a hug, buy them lunch, tell them you love them. Because we can all use a little love every day. I'm going to post some pictures on the website of all the people that work here so that when you see them in the streets, you can pull over and accost them with love. (laughs) And also, I want to thank you for tuning in each week and connecting with what we're doing here on Off Camera. I am grateful and excited that I get to make a show each week that travels all around the globe via the internet and podcast apps and television airwaves and satellites. And I feel extremely lucky to have these conversations with these iconic artists each week. Thank you for helping me make that a reality. And I hope you tune in every week. And I especially hope you tune in next week when I sit down with musician, songwriter, and comedian Weird Al Yankovic. 
my longevity surprises me more than anybody else because when I started out in the 80s, nobody wanted to sign me to a record deal because they thought, oh, this weird novelty music, you know, that doesn't have any kind of lasting impact. They were looking for artists that were going to have a long career. And that's sort of the big irony because my career has lasted a lot longer than, you know, most serious artists. Al's remarkable career continues to this day, surpassing many of the artists he originally poked fun at as each new generation of 12-year-olds rediscover the wit and humor and silliness of his music. And as a side note, the reason Al was brought to my attention was my daughter came up to me about six months ago and said, Dad, have you heard of this musician Weird Al Yankovic? And it immediately brought back a flood of memories of me listening to the Dr. Demento show and discovering Weird Al even before his MTV rise to fame. And I was blown away that someone that entertain me as a 12-year-old would be entertaining my daughter at 12 as well. And we connected over Weird Al and started listening to all his songs. So it was a real treat to have him on. And then we got to light his accordion on fire. So pretty much an epic day here at the Off-Camera Studios. Al joins me to talk about his upcoming Strings Attached tour with a full orchestra, why getting pelted with objects on stage made him rethink opening for other artists, and just how white and nerdy he actually was growing up. See you next time off camera.